Living the Dream acknowledges the traditional owners of the land it is recorded on, especially the Jagera and Turrbal peoples, elders past, present and future, and their continuing struggles for justice and self-determination. You're listening to Living the Dream, the podcast of the Hoo-Ha Group. I am Dave. You are joined by... Uh, Anna Carlson. <laughs> and... John Puccini. And today we're going to be talking about the right to the city and a couple of particularly interesting struggles that have been going on that have been throwing up all kinds of complexities and challenges and stuff that we want to think about and work through. John and I promised this podcast ages ago, but life has got in the way, so we're only getting to it now. I just want to make a couple of kind of opening comments to situate it, then it's mainly going to be the Anna Carlson show. <laughs> That's the plan. Do you know now? Do you know now? <laughs> uh, and so, the, like, the thing is, the right to the city, seemingly from nowhere, has become, I think, one of the most repeated political sayings or slogans in Brisbane at the moment. Yeah. And two things seem to be driving it. One has been the election to council of Jonathan Sri for the Greens, and as part of that, a series of community oppositions against the development of the ABSO site by West Village, which have really crystallised the issue of real estate, real estate investment, house prices, and the transformation of the city. And for me, there's a whole knot of problems that are there, and they're kind of challenging my thinking. Like the first one is that this struggle seems in many ways to be really kicked off or, or amplified by an election campaign. And that's pretty challenging to my basic kind of anti-state position, which is normally like election campaigns take struggles and put them yep. in another direction. Yep. And the second point is really trying to flesh out some of these ideas that do exist out there about the city. Like, first of all, what is the right to the city, but also what role does the city play in contemporary capitalism? So how do we put together these new dynamics of struggles and what means and what are those contradictions and what's actually going on? But to get us started off, and if you'd like to just kind of tell us a little bit about your involvement so far in both the election campaign and the ABSO struggle. Yeah, sure. So the first thing to say, and I realise that um, that this is a pretty common um, caveat offered up, particularly by women speakers, so forgive me, but it does hold true in this situation. Um, I was a mere periphery member of both the Right to the City movement and the election campaign. Um, and there's a bunch of other people who have been incredibly important to the struggle. So I'm going to talk about my experiences of the campaign, um, but without any, any hint of... Uh, that being necessarily um, a definitive response to the right to the city. Anyway, that aside, so I guess um, I was really involved in both Jonathan Sree's election campaign and the right to the city, um, at least partly relationally. Jono is my partner, um, which is probably an important thing to mention. Um, so in terms of the, the election campaign, I guess I, I want to respond to, I guess, something that you brought up really really briefly there in talking about my own experiences of it which is that I always felt a really deep tension in participating in mainstream um, political organizing and in particularly in organizing oriented around an election um, because I think I probably share a lot of those same ideas of being afraid of seeing strong social movements trapped into the framework of electoral politics I guess what made me really excited about the council campaign in comparison to, for example, the previous year when we ran um, in the state election was that a council campaign is a really different kind of political landscape. So the council at, it, at its core is a local, uh, it's a local um, body. 
Um, but I also think that people's relationship with the local council is localised. It's way more geographically bound. The electorates are smaller. People actually, in many cases, know their local um, elected member um, personally. They might have actually had a conversation with that person. It's a lot more intimate. And I think for me, the, the kind of politics that I'm interested in is a personal politics. It's a politic that is, at its core and, in essence, local. So I think for that reason, um, I guess the council campaign felt really different to other kinds of political organising and particularly political organising around elections. Um, and I guess later on in, in um, the conversation we might talk a little bit about at least my analysis of why that is. Um, in terms of the right to the city, I guess the right to the city is why I cared about the local campaign. So to me, I guess these are parallel movements, parallel discussions, um, and they've been kind of core parts They've been, they're, they're messy, they're intertwined. I don't think any attempt to disentangle them will, will be impossible. They are and have always been connected. Um, so a movement on the one hand to get this one person elected to local council was simultaneously a movement to reclaim a right to the city, a transformative potential of urban space. So they're messy. That, that sounds really, really interesting. So can you tell me about some of the thinking that was going on about, okay, we can use this election campaign or we can have this election campaign in a way that politicises urban space in the city? Did that discussion happen and what kind of stuff was talked about and why? Yeah, so at the risk of making the kind of conversations that we had sound much more organised than they really were, yeah. Uh, yeah, totally those conversations happened. So I think for me, um, a really significant part of the story of Jonathan Sree in particular being elected to local council um, is that Jono has been acting as a community organiser for probably the last five years. So we've been running community gigs, community gallery spaces, opening up public spaces or kind of pseudo public spaces for events for years. So this is something that I guess we'd had um, a, a lot of experience working in a kind of community organising space for a while. So running the election campaign was kind of like a, just a, a different kind of gauze on top of work that was already happening um, and having that work orient around something different. In terms of urban transformations and local, local council, I think um, Actually, I think a big part, and some of our thinking was really influenced by some stuff, Dave, that we've heard you talk about, which is that there is this kind of, uh, that there's like been a, this like learned history of failure in the left, that we haven't had any, we haven't had many successes, right? And for us, we were like, okay, well, that's really fucking depressing. And that's part of the reason that people don't get mobilised. Um, so this, a winnable local council election that gave us an opportunity to communicate in a different way, to kind of be bold and, and talk about stuff that's far left of normal political discourse um, was a real opportunity not just to change the, the kind of framework of debate but also to win mm -hmm. and that is I think not an insignificant part of the discussion. Yeah I find that really interesting because um, the way that you're framing winning isn't in terms of the benefit of winning is to suddenly have access to power but the collective experience of the people involved mm. and the collective experience of people who are spectators of it. Yep. But it seems to be, I don't want to be absolutely. projecting things no, here, no, that what's more important about the win is that it contributes to a collective experience yep. of, of, of power rather than like, oh my God, I've got the keys to the city, yeah. finally I can decide where the seats go. Yeah, so like, as naive as we were about many things, Actually, I don't think we were ever naive about the actual political power wielded by one local councillor in a heavily LNP-dominated council. Yeah. That was really 
never a part of the, the project. Um, and I, that, that's not to say that I don't think that Jonathan is doing really important work inside council. I think that the fact that there is on record discussions around homelessness, discussions around housing affordability, the fact that these things now exist in the Courier-Mail, that we have a Courier-Mail, our like, most right-wing newspaper in Australia, close to, talking about things like housing affordability uh, and share houses is, is amazing. Those are amazing um, and I think quite transgressive things that have happened uh, as a result of Jono being elected to council in particular. But that said, I don't think that was, that was um, for many of us really, I don't think that was a, uh, a core part of the, the reason we were passionate about it. It's not a part of the reason I was passionate about it. Obviously, I can't speak for others. From someone from the outside, like I, I often get the impression that one of the things that was expressed in this election campaign was almost that there was a constituency, that there's this kind of collective experience of a certain segment of young people that live in inner city Brisbane that are maybe, tell me if I'm off base here, are tertiary educated often, but are in relatively precarious uh, forms of employment, where one of the major things that seems to be impacting on their lives is the cost of living in that environment and a complex relationship to how that environment is changing. Because they're not often, like when I lived in that part of the city, they're not often people who were born there and grew up there. They're people who moved in in their late teens and early 20s because a certain cultural promise is offered up. They share a certain cultural life, but it's increasingly hard to live in that city. Do you think that's real? And was did that come through in any way in the kind of framing and discussions people were having? Yeah, so I guess to respond to that, I'd say I, I think that that demographic was the demographic that we called upon very strongly as organisers. I don't think that's the demographic that changed their vote and got us elected. And so I think that, that there is kind of a tension here and I think one of the really common narratives, particularly around the Greens, is that the Greens are a party of inner city, uh, culturally oriented, tertiary educated young people. Um, and that I think is a claim that is at once real and simultaneously not actually what happened in this election. So based on based on the stats, I didn't do any of this research, but Max, who ran the campaign and is an all-round an incredible human. Good um, egg. Good egg. He is indeed a good egg. Um, did, did a lot of research into exactly who it was that changed their vote. And by large, it was owner-occupiers who'd been in the area for 20 years. So we're talking about a very different kind of... I guess class equation that's happening here rather than this being the, the kind of stereotypical narrative of a bunch of young professionals move into the area and the Greens win power. Mm. Actually that didn't happen. Our vote was lowest in Kangaroo Point which is the area that has the highest you know, per capita um, highest, pro most professionalised mm. area in, in the, the ward. Uh, okay, I want to ask a question to John mm. to jump in. So you've written some stuff on the blog recently about the history of struggles around the city. Yep. How much from from you tell of this particular election campaign? We haven't even got to the ABSO struggle yeah, yet. Yeah, yeah. How much does that resonate with the historical post Second World War historical experience, and how much breaks from it? And you're going to need to lean in for the mic. Do you mean in terms of electoralism? In terms of the actual? Just generally, what's different or similar now? Mm. Okay. Well, I guess in thinking about it, thinking about this historically, there have been some successful interventions at the local government area in the past, in Sydney in particular, in the 1970s and 1980s, the um, Nick Oroglass, who's mm. an old um, Trotskyist, he was like kind of the father figure of Australia's Trotskyists, he uh, actually split from the Labour Party and formed the Balmain Labour Party, and they ran the city of Balmain, 
for quite some time, quite 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 successfully actually, enabled to defend green and public spaces and to defend the rights of um, the rights of the people who were overwhelmingly owner occupiers who were living there as well. Just remember that these parts of the inner city in Sydney and in Brisbane as well, you know, they were overwhelmingly owner occupiers um, for most of the um, for, for for a lot of the, the period up until about a few decades ago. So the research that I've done on places in um, like Bowen Hills, for example, there was a significant struggle in the 1970s around what we would now call the right to the city. Um, they were majority owner-occupiers. This was a majority owner-occupier owner area, often elderly or migrant people who bought a house very cheaply in the 1940s and 1950s. And now that those suburbs were becoming less enviable mm. in terms of suburbanization and the increasing realization that the inner cities are useful in terms of um, infrastructure, yeah. you know, and they were they were then being kind of they bought these houses and they lived in them and they were like the only thing they'd ever had, often and they were about to have those taken off of them. So I think you know this is interesting. You talk about the owner occupier demographic in West End who switched their vote, and I'm thinking it's probably a, a very different owner occupier demographic to the kind of poor migrant elderly people. I mean, not not overwhelmingly, but I, I imagine you know like I have this version, this idea of kind of upper middle class owner occupiers who bought a Queenslander and done it up, and now it's worth close to a mill. You know, and that that's probably part of that demographic. But I think that you know that would be one of the changes as well mm. in that you know in the cities as in Australia were in these early stages homes of the poor homes yeah. of poor people who might have been able to buy a home but in West End in particular it was a it was a majority rental suburb mm. West End's always been a majority rental like call it a domiciliary suburb or something it's like a suburb which has overwhelmingly been renters um, mm. pretty much the whole time like South Brisbane before Expo came in and trashed it was 100% renters really like, that's really because you know like I kind of read the stats that normally make the kind of um neat slice where if you look at Australian households, a third own their house outright, yep. a third are mortgaging, yep. a third uh, are, are renting. Yep. And then you don't forget that there's a kind of, those stats don't play out neatly in every ge every geography. I think that's the problem yeah. with any of these national statistics. Yep. Yep. It makes every place look like average place, yep. where in fact these differences yep. actually coalesce in really expressed geographies. Yep. And so that yep. that's a really kind of interesting no, uh, thing to hear. I'll just add one other thing to that. I went to Jeff Rickard's uh, book launch. Jeff Rickard, great Brisbane labor historian, wrote yep. a really great book about any land. He, um, the speech that was being given by Bob Carnegie, who's the State Secretary of the Maritime Union, he gave a speech and he was talking about just reflecting on Ernie Lane, who lived in Highgate Hill. He owned yeah. an amazing house in Highgate Hill, one of the, on the terrace, I'm not sure what the street is, but the one that looks out over the city, Dornock. Yeah, he yeah. owned an amazing house on Dornock Terrace and he owned a holiday home in Corumban, a little holiday shack in Corumban, all on a worker's wage. One individual working class wage. He was able to to do those to do that. How imagine imagine a city where we could afford that today. Yeah. And I think this is the other thing that's been is finding expression here is this transformation that's happening in the Australian economy, where um, you know, house price like house prices continue to rocket, and that's being facilitated not by wages growth but by yeah. debt. Yeah. So I, I've just had a look quickly at the um, Queensland budget. And I might put the graph in the on the blog about yeah. this that just shows the increasing proportion of investment and value of investment that is going towards inner city units and those prices. Yeah. So what is also being expressed here is not just changing the city, but the cost of living in the city yeah. and also yeah. the cost of being indebted. Okay, but pulling back, I guess I'd really like to hear more about the nitty gritty of what the campaign looked like. And then, if it's possible, why this campaign has then allowed to then move on 
to mobilise popular opposition against the West Village construction. Because that's against my model, right? An election campaign should not end with the capacity to organise hundreds of people talking about breaking the law. That, that's a new narrative, right? And, I, and to complicate this question even further, because you've mentioned it, what I want to throw in here is the Greens, right? So this has happened under the the language of the Greens, and if I'm correct, Nick Oroglass, who you mentioned before, one of his protégés, for lack of a better term, is Hal Greenland, yeah, Hal Greenland. who's now a really influential member of the yeah, Greens in New yeah. South Wales, right? Yeah, so there's yeah. a story about, there's a story here. So yeah. if you could kind of talk about what the campaign actually looked like, yep. and and then some of those other questions out, and that would be really yeah. great. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess the, the thing I would say straight off the bat is that I guess, yeah, of course you don't expect an election campaign to end with a grassroots social movement if it didn't begin with a grassroots social Yeah, movement. totally. Um, and I guess what, what I was trying to pull out by talking about some of Jono's lineage as a community organiser um, is that I actually think the mobilising of people has been there for a while. Yeah, that's what um, I was going to say, is segue from your question. I don't know if it's correct that maybe the upset campaign came out of the election campaign. I think that it's more messy than that. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. And that, that is something that I, I think has been there from the beginning. So. One, one of those kind of, I guess, um, lucky crossovers is that we were really concerned about the right to the city and a right to collectively transform inner city space, a right to housing affordability, anti-gentrification movements. Turns out lots of other people are as well. And so I guess fortuitously then, the narratives that we were interested in using this kind of council campaign to explore turned out to also be the same the same narratives that people were actually deeply personally concerned about. Um, so within maybe two weeks of door knocking, which was the, the main thing that um, the, the kind of volunteers for Jono's campaign did during the election, we, we knocked on every door in the electorate uh, or every street in the electorate. Um, the main thing that we talked about was how people felt about their access to the city. Okay, I want to stop you there because that's interesting, right? Like, so you're door knocking, and who is doing this door knocking? So I guess volunteers. So, yeah. yeah. A yeah. sizable base? Reasonably. It grew really quickly towards the end. See, that's so, interesting because I can think of few things I'd rather do than door knocking, <laughs> right? So, so, and it's um, like our um, show obviously takes its cues from Navarra FM and James Butler, who does that, always talks about it would be so much better if the left knocked, knocked on doors, right? So that's really yeah. interesting. So yeah. people, are doing, who, people are doing this door knocking. Yeah. When they're knocking on the doors, what's the model conversation that takes place? So, g'day, my name's Anna. I'm a volunteer with Jonathan Street. Did you know there was a council election coming up? Yes or no? <laughs> Have a bit of a chat about how you're feeling about the upcoming um, election. What do you care about in the city? Um, and I guess the, the main question that you're asking is, what, what do you vote on? What, what do you care about? How do you make those decisions? Um, and I, by and large, the main thing that we, we used when we talked to people was, or the main thing that we spoke to people about, was how do you feel about development in the area? And there are like four standard responses. Yeah, look, I know, I know development is important. I know it's important that like, the inner city densifies, but I'm a bit concerned about X. And this was so common that it, became, it was ubiquitous. So I think at the point that you realise that, that almost everybody across demographics in an area has a really similar experience of development and questions around development is the point when you're like, shit, maybe there's something here that we yeah, need to yeah. tap into. Um, and I think that that was, that was the point at which the, the campaign really reoriented to be very firmly around housing affordability and the right to the city. So I'm going to play, want to play devil's advocate here. Sure. So what's different about this questioning process than a kind of smooth marketing campaign? Yeah. yeah. 
No, I mean, I mean nothing. And it does, in some cases, feel really manipulative. Um, and and in, in a sense, like, some of the most uncomfortable experiences I have of campaigning are being taught by really great campaigners how to campaign because campaigning is manipulative. Um, and there, there is a kind of, like, oh, how do you best develop common ground with this stranger and what thing to say? And you are entirely basing your responses off of what they say. So there is a lot of, oh, so I hear that you've been... You're feeling a bit concerned about development in the local area. Did you know that both the major parties in yeah. Queensland take donations from developers? Yeah. Um, and that, that was a really big part, I think. Um, that, that line is really simple, it's really easy for people to understand, um, and it cuts through a lot of other stuff. So you're concerned about development, the Labor Party takes money from developers. Mm. Um, and I think without needing to have a long conversation, that, that I guess is part of a bigger story yeah. about who owns the city. Okay. That, that's interesting, and again, like all these things is raising a whole series of kind of questions I think we can flesh out. Um, but I, I do want to just kind of stop on that point about, and I understand this is kind of sensitive, how did this fit in with the kind of political, the politics of the Greens, and which are not always, which are, you know, whilst the media often presents them as if they're, you know, watermelons, you know, red on the inside, green on the outside, in fact... We know that's not the case always, and so you have this campaign that has a different strategy that is bringing in a lot of people who were outside the Greens before they got involved in the campaign. Mm. And I've got to say that as a non-Greens member, I think the Greens apparatus has done very well out of Jono's campaign and wants to bathe in the glow of that. What Was there a tension there at all? So, I mean, the first, the first thing to say is that... Um, so I, I am now a member of the Greens. I joined the Greens about three weeks before the election. Um, uh, I think maybe ten percent of our volunteers were Greens members, um, and most of most of those joined after a good couple of months of being involved in the campaign. A lot of our like key volunteers and campaigners were are, are not members of the Greens. Have never been. Probably will never join. So. There's, there's, I mean, that in itself is probably pretty interesting. How do you have a situation where people are motivated enough to do things that are objectively not that fun, like spend literally every weeknight making calls to people who live in the area and every weekend going and knocking on people's doors? Like, they're not, they're not like number one fun Saturday morning. Um, so how do you get... No. <laughs> they are, in fact, a long way from that. Stoked the campaign is over. Um... But so how do you, yeah, how do you get people who are not motivated by some kind of like, you know, tribal allegiance to the Greens to do that? And I guess it's because there was a story underneath that um, that, that people cared about. The other thing, and this, I by no means am elevating this to the significance uh, that this will sound like I am, but I think it's not coincidental that this was also happening at a time when we saw Jeremy Corbyn's Labour at a time when we were seeing, uh, you know, this kind of transformation in the US and Bernie Sanders, Sanders yeah. and this kind of, these kind of, I guess, very different. I mean, I guess for the for, for some of us, we would also talk about Syriza before they sort of crumpled. Um, and a whole bunch of other stuff. But I think the fact that at least Corbyn and Sanders are so visible um, and were such, I guess, visible presences of a different kind of politics and a diff- or a different kind of politic, um, that, that that played into it as well. I think that was that was something where people were like, oh, hang on, this, this cool stuff that I'm seeing happening in other places, there's this, like, small example of it happening here. Maybe I will just give it a But electorally focused, right? That's, yeah. I think, and that's the... Con- I, I think what's in, I think that's really interesting, right? Because it kind of gives us a small Brisbane example yeah. of a 
broad global anglosphere yeah. or maybe global yeah. moment, right? Like yeah, it's yeah. being played out. Wow, yeah. wow, cool. Yeah. And, and it's interesting that it seems like it is increasingly outside of the Greens as well. Like you're saying, like it's not led by Greens members. In a lot of ways, you could say this is a victory for that particular demographic of socially engaged South Brisbane residents, mm. more so than it is a victory for the Greens. Mm. And that's really interesting in the same way, of course, that you know both Corbyn and Sanders emerge from the very periphery of the Labour Party in Corbyn's case, but not even from the Democratic Party in Sanders' case. Because uh, this is happening at a time where a federal election, where the current Green leadership is continuing the standard trajectory, like the line that I expect, which is one of normalisation within the political class, right? And, you know, like, um, without being too divisive, you know, Adam Brandt, Brandt. Brandt, you know, so he comes from a, was in Left Alliance as a student, Yes. Wrote a PhD on Marx and law, you yes. know, but you wouldn't detect that unless yes. you read the Australian shit sheet on him, right? Yeah. You know, like the only people who know it are the right who dig it. So that's yeah. the norm, but this is pointing the other way. Now, we're, we're, I'm conscious of time, of course, as always, I have to go back to work. So, um, how do we jump? The election's won. Yeah. Very soonly, very soon after that, there's the campaign over the West Village, mm. right? Was this all. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with West Village? Was this already on the horizon while the election campaign was happening? And how do these things join together? Yeah, so so West Village, again, by no means am I an expert on, on any of this stuff. Uh, from my understanding, so West Village is a is a development um, proposed and, and which construction has or deconstruction has started. Uh, for the the old ice cream factory site in the centre of uh, Boundary Street. So, um, I just want to say for non-Brisbane listeners, Boundary Street is probably, you know, West End is comparable, I guess, to kind of Newtown, Enmore, Marrickville. I don't know what the Melbourne equivalent is. And Boundary Street is the main, you know, funky shops and night spots, you know, life that runs through. And also has a particularly violent colonial history as well. Yeah, yeah, and and also, and perhaps significantly, I think a lot of the, say, sociological work that's happened that that looks particularly at places like Boundary Street also talks about the fact that despite being bourgeois in the fact that it has these, like, fancy little boutique shops and cute stuff, is nonetheless also a place where um, cross-demographic interactions are possible. So homeless populations in West End have been uh, historically really high, continue to be so. It's a place where a very broad cross-section of the community feels at least reasonably safe and has a reasonable um, access to the public realm. And that, that is not insignificant to a discussion around why this site is important, nor is the colonial history of Boundary Street um, and the continuing displacement of Indigenous folks from South Brisbane and West End in particular. Anyway, so West Village proposed major development, seven 15-storey towers, um, which will introduce, I think, over 3,000 new dwellings into the area over the next uh, the next couple of years. Um, about uh, so the stage one of the process has been approved uh, and deconstruction of the former site has started already. Um, do you go, you guys probably know as much about where it's at now as I do? Is that about right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think it's interesting as well to to think about in the broader context of how I guess there's lots of development going on in West End. We yeah. know that. So how I guess does this does you know so West Village happens? Does that tie into existing layers of people who are opposed to the opposed to development in broader parts of West End? And also, I guess obviously in the Gabba, and there are other places where these massive construction projects yeah. are underway. And I, I will link to some stuff that I've written about this just to have some of the stats. But there's been this kind of hypertrophic growth of investment in 
off the plan apartments in the inner city Brisbane generally as part and similar to all through in sub, uh, all through cities in Australia where I think the stats just off the top of my head are something that leading up to 2018 there are somewhere between 15,000 to 30,000 units in the pipeline where I think you know leading up in the there's been somewhere only between five to 10,000 constructed previously so it's this huge investment that's going on and the prices of these are rising at an even higher rate than the pricing housing. Mm. And this is largely fueled by generating increasing bubbles of debt. So we have this mixture of changing the city, financialization, and transformation of of our wages into debt, into mortgages and rents that are being sucked out of the city. Anna drew a really great picture to, to emphasise that. We'll put that in, the city is a money box with the money being shaked out of it. And I, I really want to, like, this is something as an outsider that I've seen that is different about this campaign, is that West End, it's not new to have campaigns opposing development. But they are normally classically nimbyist, right? Yeah. Or which has this, you know, that for non-Australians, that's not in my backyard. Yeah. Where they're, and they're often framed in this idea of like, West End's special, we just want to keep it special, everyone else, fuck off, right? Yeah. And the rest of the city can be horrible. This is not the language that's been used in the West Village campaign, where it's very more clear, it's clearly more about, it's not opposition to density, right? Yeah. Um, is, and also it seems to be about house prices and Brisbane on a whole. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision? Totally, and not least because I mean the average age of the like the voluntary kind of power behind our campaign. Max, the campaign manager, was 23 when the campaign ran. Um, most of us are, are under 30. I'm pretty sure almost none of us are homeowners. So I think that there, there is there is a relevance to that because it's just harder to claim that 26 year old, you know, immediately post studying people are NIMBYs, you know? Most of us didn't even live in West End. So it's it's just difficult. It's just more difficult, I think. That was was certainly part of it. Um, But of course, that was also a major claim of most people who opposed the electoral campaign was, oh, this is just NIMBYism. Don't you understand that density is important? Don't you understand the inner city needs to densify? Um, The response to which is, yeah, but who gets to live in this densified inner city? Um, And that became, I guess, the really core part of, of this West Village discussion as well, was okay cool seven 15 story apartment buildings what's the average cost of them is it possible for inner city workers working class people to live in these apartments and go to work in the city reducing traffic congestion no Mm. so then they are not helping any of the problems that we have identified they're not reducing any of the issues that you know you individual people who we've spoken to over this election campaign have identified as the things that make your life in the city harder things like traffic congestion high rates high cost of living all of that kind of stuff Um, and so i mean i think that that's that's really significant right in that it means that people I guess there was just a point when people stopped believing, stopped believing mm. this line that more more apartments yeah. means cheaper housing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's an, there's something I've promised to write for John, but I haven't got around to it yet. Because the standard argument normally is, uh, well, look, high prices are caused by lack of supply. Because yeah. that's how it has, no, supply, supply yeah. and demand are meant to work. Where in fact, what we're seeing is a complete contradiction, yeah. you know. So, which makes us think that maybe that's not true. Yeah. Where there, there is constantly increasing supply and constantly increasing price. Yeah. And this is because of debt, right? Yeah. Where the capacity to keep on generating money out of nothing is debt. And that yeah. these units function as speculative assets yeah. means that more demand and more supply progress together. So, this standard yeah. argument, which has been mounted against mm. the opposition that, oh, you want... You know, you want to lower the cost of living in the city, then you want more apartments, is actually no. No. currently empirically untrue. Now, it could be, 
tomorrow or in six months, there'll be a burst of the bubble, right? But that yeah. doesn't mean that suddenly we're all going to be out of... That's ruination. Yeah. You know? like, yeah. that, that's a different, different yeah. set of things. Yeah. So what's the campaign like at the moment? And what's happened? And how does it all fit together? Yeah, well, again, I am not the best person to ask about this. Um, but, I mean, I guess... So all I can talk about is, is my kind of peripheral perspectives, um, which is that I think... The, the kind of campaign around the right to the city is one that is now um, kind, of, kind of framed around these like community, community working groups. So there's a housing affordability working group that meets close to weekly, um, working on developing, I guess, empirical data to back up these kind of broad claims that we're making. Um, and they're doing fantastic work. So there's, there's this amazing little like network of people who are involved. So people who are uh, social researchers who are working with architects and designers who are working alongside um, folks who uh, are or have previously experienced homelessness to talk about, to kind of try and map out exactly what these kind of interconnected issues around housing affordability and gentrification actually are. Um, but more significantly, to kind of develop the resources that we can then use um, to, to make these claims more assertively. So um, I guess there's, there's that. The other big part of the right to the city is, is a question, um, at least for me, and again, this is just because this is my, my focus quite often, um, is around the aesthetics of the social movement that has been produced. And I think, I think that they were not insignificant. The fact that our campaign looked different to mainstream political campaigns, I think, is important. Um, and that, that kind of aesthetic is produced through a whole bunch of different things. Part of it is produced through Jono and the fact that Jono doesn't look like a politician and he doesn't talk like a politician and he's a poet and you know, all of these kind of other things that mean that there was kind of a break from a traditional narrative that occurred. Um, and I guess it's that that is continually reproduced now. So we have, uh, and, and have been for the last maybe four or five years, been running an event called Conspiracy, which... Um, was, uh, was about using you know, clever uses of inner city space, so taking kind of liminal spaces between the public and the private, turning them into public spaces for a night and using them creatively, so having gigs, having, uh, you know, showing art, a whole bunch of stuff. So we still, we still run that event, um, but now, d despite the fact that we haven't changed anything about it, that event is the right to the city. That event is about yeah. cultural ownership and, and yeah. changing the way that we interact with the inner city and having ownership over urban resources. and. So it's kind of one of those interesting things where the stuff that was already happening has just been absorbed because the right to the city is a compelling claim. Um, this this claim to be able to transform the city and be transformed in return. It's, it, I think it, it, yeah, it's got into people's psyche in some deep ways. Yeah, and it kind of changes the way you think about just ordinary normal things you might go about doing in the city because this is what, like when Henry Lefebvre uh, talks about the right to the city, he talks about the right to, the right to differential space, the right to be able to use the space, use use urban spaces in, in, in creative and, and, and pr protesting sorts of ways as well. So, and this doesn't need to be going and holding a protest. It just needs to be living alternative forms of life. You know? Absolutely. And I think that that's sort of something that's really important. And it can and yeah, it's interesting how these kind of just you realize that you're just living this different life, and then it suddenly becomes politicized. Not by the fact that you've politicized it, but by the fact that. There's other things happening in the world mm. around you that politicise it, mm. that make it a political issue. So I guess like, I'm going to have to go back. Yeah. To, I've, I've got it's three things, one. you know. I, so I went along to one of the rallies that was called as part of the opposition to West Village and at the development of Abso site. And I guess there are two things in it that really struck me. First of all, there was about 300 people there. And so that's the normal yeah, yeah. standard size of a rally in Brisbane. 
what was different there was, so I think the people that were there were not there out of a kind of a formal ideological identification with the left or a cause, but because this rally expressed their material interest, mm. right? Secondly, though, when we got to the site, what you're really struck by is the level of urban fortification that the site yeah. goes under. And that at some point, that fortification is a challenge that will need to be breached. How does that happen, yeah. right? Particularly, how does that fit in with a campaign where there's an elected figure, is yeah, yeah. seen as the figurehead to yeah. that? And that's already um, posed some challenges. And, and I guess tied up in that as well is how much of the election campaign has given people expectations in Jono as an elected figure that are unrealistic and can only be solved by them breaking the law, right? The, the second part is, I guess, you know, that um, one of the other points of tension in Australian society, one of the other fault lines, is actually about the work that's done in building sites, right? The attempt by the government to break the CFMEU. In fact, if you look at any of the stats, one of the few places where industrial action happens is on construction sites, right? They're disproportionately represented. How do these two struggles encounter each other? Is it possible for them to encounter each other beyond the level of elected officials, right? Yeah. Which is the left narrative is that here's an official of this campaign, here's an official of the union, they meet, right? Particularly, yeah. you know, John, you've written yeah. an article recently yeah. that was massively well received yeah. about the New South Wales Builders Labourers Federation and the Green Band. So yeah. that's the other point there. And I guess the third one is like, what would it take for this to genuinely be a Brisbane struggle? How does this become not just another wacky element of what happens in, in South Brisbane? Because it's like, uh, if we're just talking about the issue of development, it's generalised out to the city, but it's also on the fringes. So the, this new city that's meant to be north of, uh, oh, it's Aura or Aurora, City of Light or City of Colours, I've, I've forgotten the 20,000 houses, 10,000 houses that are going to be built in Springfield. Yep. So in the last five minutes, Anna, yeah. answer that. Yeah. <laughs> and if you can't, well. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so, so yeah, on the, the kind of different texture of the campaign, uh, one really significant thing I think is also something that John mentioned, which is like rather than asking people to kind of lay claim to some ideological basis for their movement, instead just politicise the stuff they're already doing. So a lot of people go and hang out on Saturday morning in West End. So if you hold a rally on Saturday morning in West End and you give them breakfast, maybe they'll come and hang out, you know. And maybe that is actually just a really interesting way of, rather than trying to change the way people live their lives, instead say, you're already challenging norms by doing the things you do. So that's the first point. 300 people having breakfast together can be a transgressive act. The next one, um, and urban fortification, breaches to urban fortification around the site. Um, we saw some really interesting things happen in the first couple of weeks around, I guess, like uh, challenging those those kind of liminal zones between the three fences that were erected. Um, and the security cameras, right? Like, yeah. there's a dense, the guards. Yeah. you know, the dense net of security cameras that is over Absolutely. that site. Yeah, so it, it is really genuinely highly fortified. I think the, the discussion that's been happening a lot at the moment... Um, I feel no need to incriminate yourself or others. <laughs> no, is, um, is really about, um, about what the purpose would be of breaching that site. So at the moment, the, the, existing, um, the existing infrastructure has been removed. So almost everything that was there has been demolished. Um, and we have a timeline for what, that, what that's going to be. So I can't say what's going to happen once construction begins. That might be a kind of different story. What I do know about the, the negotiation of the relationship between the electoral office of the GABA ward and the Right to the City campaign um, is that they are messy and intertwined and they probably always will be. But 
um, there is a really deep desire for, I guess, the right to the city to be something that doesn't rely on a single figure, not least because that will be unsustainable. Totally. That single figure has, A, a 60-hour-a-week job already, mm, yes. but is also complicit in that they are uh, in power, you know, yeah, in yeah. a sense. Um, but also unsustainable. It has potholes, right? Yeah. Exactly. Um, and more broadly unsustainable in the sense that you can't, you can't pin your whole movement on one person or a, or a tiny group of people. Uh, it just doesn't work. So there's that. The, the thing I would say on that is that one, one thing that we're working on at the moment um, is, is using existing kind of, I guess, social organising infrastructure. So uh, one, of the, one of the projects I'm involved in is called Brisbane Free University. John spoke at a session we had a couple of weeks ago and we're in the process of organising a, a winter program that's full of discussions around the right to the city and, and various quite complex aspects of it. So the first session, which is uh, probably going to be on the 29th of July, is a session about what decolonising the inner city will actually look like, what is required to decolonise the city. Um, and and it'll it'll lead on to what does a feminist city look like? What Very does yeah, fascinating. You know what what is an anarchist geography? So these these are really interesting topics, and and which will hopefully be able to, I guess, add some depth to what can otherwise be seen as a very NIMBY claim, or we want West End to stay as it is. Um, so in terms of the yeah the green bands and electoral politics and negotiating with you know I guess the the kind of traditional elements of of union power and in particular how do you get the CFME you on site that's an ongoing challenge right and I feel like we um, so far have, have done a lot of talking to people like John who've done lots of reading and writing about this stuff um, we also made a zine that we handed out to construction crew who did decide to shut down the site for a day uh, on the basis partly of our discussions but I'm that's amazing. not really that's sure good. whether that happened yeah. or not I, I can't believe I had this the first I've heard of it well, I, I don't I, know I, if that I don't anyway no, something nobody believed me. Nobody. But, but that, that is something that at some point needs to be documented, right? Because yeah. otherwise it just gets lost in the wind sure. where it's actually yeah. really interesting. Yeah. yeah, but I am now concerned that I have gotten it crucially, that's, that's crucially wrong. So anyway, look, at any rate, we handed out zines to CFMEU members and then the site was shut down. So no causation or correlation <laughs> claims are being made here. Yeah. Those two things happened. I know that for sure. Yeah. Whether yeah. they influence one another, not yeah. sure. Anyway, so... At, at any rate, so there, there have been dialogues and there's been discussion and I think for me the most compelling aspect of that interaction is that the people who are building those houses can't afford to live there. Yep. And as long as that is the case, then I feel like there's grounds for a really meaningful conversation and I think that will begin to happen. Um, I forgot to write down the last point that you made, so I can't... Yeah, about generalising through the city. Generalising through the city, yeah. Well, I actually reckon, John, you would be way better placed to respond to that than I am. Um, what, what do you think? What are the opportunities for extending? Well, I mean, I'm a historian and I always put this kind of disclaimer in anything I say, much as you have throughout this discussion, that, you know, I, I don't think that history provides us with clean lessons mm -hmm. on anything. But I think that it's about identifying possibilities yeah. and I think that's what the BLF did really well is, is, is often the, the use of the BLF they would be approached by people but equally they would recognise when issues were ongoing they embedded themselves mm. within the social movements that were going on around them like they, they, they shut down you know the um, 
building sites on Macquarie University when a, when a gay student was kicked out of college there. You know, they embedded themselves into these social movements, they embedded themselves into the communities around there that often the BLF members lived in. So some of the, some of the communities BLF members didn't live in, they couldn't afford to live there. Some of them they did. Some of them were working class areas where, where BLF members actually lived and they were often very involved in that. So I guess it's, it's really just about looking for opportunities to broaden out and, you know, you've got we you we have a very good message in terms of going out and saying you know that we we, we demand the right to the city that you know that these houses that are getting built people can't afford to live in and I think that that's a claim that can that can be that can be generalised and there are lots of we know that there are lots of struggles going on around the city about around this point but I think it's really just that that process of looking at what did the BLF do not trying to apply that rigidly but just saying you know what kind of useful things did previous have previous struggles engaged in what kind of useful tactics maybe have they employed that might be useful for us you know for me it just kind of comes down to this concept we talk about a lot Dave the inverted periscope mm. you've got to kind of look for where struggles are happening not where you might normally look for them in, in, the, in the tabloids or whatever but mm. looking for them what's already on going on level. in community what's groups already what's already going on, going yeah, on yeah. In, we know in, in parents struggles. groups on a Thursday morning right yeah. around yeah, yeah. access right. to halls or yep. you know um, yep. th things like that you would normally that are really crucial which is like yeah. do you have speed humps in a road right because yeah, that affects yeah. if kids can play on it yeah. you know which yeah. is a right to the city right yeah, yeah. an ability to play yeah. outside can you get yeah. from the yeah. suburbs to yeah. to Boundary Street if you're yeah. a 15 year old that lives in yeah. you know Forest Lake or Anala it depends if you live in a train line like, there's a yeah. whole range of things about yeah. this anyway that was fantastic any final thoughts to close with Anna oh no I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, to hearing more podcast thank you for inviting me on i'm sorry i don't know more about everything oh, i think that was fantastic. fantastic absolutely great and we we reject your apology <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right Not you, accepted. you are listening to living the dream the podcast of the hoo-ha group